This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. I am for a limited time only a massive fan of the beautiful game of football. <laughs> <laughs> Let's meet the panel. Uh, Minnie Rahman is Campaigns and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, everyone. Home Secretary Cruella Patel is reportedly (laughs) going to introduce offshore processing centres for asylum seekers in next week's Nationality and Borders Bill, uh, talking to Denmark about its own plans to open one in Rwanda. Um, Where has this idea come from? Have, Have other countries been doing this for some time? I mean, yeah, other countries like Australia have some types of offshore centres and it's something that the government has been looking at for a little while. Obviously, they like it because it sounds harsh and it is harsh. I've actually been thinking about it a lot and I think the only way to look at this is to look at the outcomes of the immigration bill rather than the bill itself. So if you imagine that this bill is going to pass because there's an 80 majority, the only possible outcome if they implement everything in the bill is that there's going to be a huge backlog in the number of people stuck in the entire immigration system with no recourse to justice and nowhere to go. So you've got a potential boom in undocumented EU nationals from tomorrow onwards. You've got an existing asylum backlog, which is entirely the Home Office's fault. And then you've got Brexit, which means you are left with nowhere to return people, which has been the government's MO for a little while. Places like Napier, which they want to extend, have caused huge public problems for them. So the only solution for a government who doesn't want to fix anything and wants to bury its head in the sand is to try and put all these people elsewhere so that the problems you have created are out of sight and out of mind. And logically, it's probably easier to try and negotiate one huge offshore centre with another country than it is a million different deals with other countries to return people. So I don't think either are that achievable, but that's the logic behind it. I suppose I thought with offshore processing that that Australia would have somewhere that was sort of relatively near Australia. The idea that Rwanda, which is further away than most of the countries that the asylum seekers are coming from. That seems to me quite bizarre. Is that normal to choose somewhere that like that? No, it's not normal. <laughs> okay, I mean, I just checking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just the fact that they're grasping at straws because they know that they've got a huge fucking problem and they don't know how to deal with it. And instead of just being like, oh, we'll do all the really sensible things that everyone has been telling us to do for a really long mm. time, we're just going to be really dramatic and chaotic, which is entirely the Home Office and entirely Pretty Patel. Back from a well-deserved holidays, Ian Dunt, editor at largerpolitics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Hello. The deadline for EU citizens to register for settled status in the UK is this Thursday. Last week, the backlog was still over 400,000, so it seems there will be uh, a number of people who will fall through the cracks. Could there be an extension or some other way of um, of addressing this? There is another way, which is that they have this sort of p- this period of leeway, which is entirely in their gift to give. Um, about extenuating circumstances. They've been extremely unclear about what the definition of that would be. I don't think there's going to be any extension beyond that fact. And by the way, the backlog is only part of the problem. The other problem is the people that haven't applied in the first place. Now, with these guys, the truth is we don't know how many European citizens there are in this country. There was no reason to have to know beforehand. And it could be a lot of people. We know that the kind of people they would be would be very hard to reach communities, people that don't speak English, um, maybe a seasonal agricultural workers who don't know their entitlement, those who just don't follow very much of the news um, and, and don't really know that this is happening, that the deadline was coming up, that they even had to apply in the first place. Also, people who 
just simply couldn't dream that they would have to apply because they've been in the country for so long, they were so embedded in the culture here, that it would just have been unthinkable to them that they would have to apply to stay in their own home. We know that those people are out there and it's been really hard to get into contact with them for the organisations who would be doing it, partly because of the pandemic, which was part of the argument then of saying, well, you should fucking extend this thing. That, of course, Mm. is something they haven't done. Many will be able to talk to this much better than I do. Public... Um, pressure, people speaking out on behalf of individual cases can push change, especially if they get the local MP on board. So for some of these stories that I think will play out over the sort of months and years to come, it will really, really matter that you get out there and you back European citizens when they're coming up against the Home Office. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello, Dorian. So half of my daughter's secondary school appears to be in self-isolation in the, at the moment. And from what I can tell, uh, it's not the only one. One in 20 pupils were off school last week. And some people want these affected schools to be closed because infections are, are kind of whizzing around, while others think the self-isolation rules should be relaxed. Uh, and I, it seems that the, actually the majority of pupils who are off are because of someone in their bubble, not because they themselves have tested positive. Why is this become such a thing really just in the in the in the past week and is there a right way to deal with it yeah it doesn't feel much like freedom day does it when you've got stuck inside indoors for 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 10 days um it's it's a very knotty problem which the government hoped that it wouldn't have to tackle because it hoped that it would be able to keep uh, covid uh, infection levels low enough that it wouldn't start spreading widely before the end of the school holidays. And then they would just kick the problem into September and see how things look then and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But what, of course, is happening here is that people who can't yet be vaccinated, i.e. under 18s, are getting COVID. That was always going to happen when the infection, when the Delta variant got a hold again. And you really have some really difficult but simple choices. Either you decide that you're going to vaccinate uh, as many kids as possible. We haven't decided whether to do that yet. It's not clear whether the government will. It's not yet clear how parents feel about that, whether they're sufficiently concerned about COVID that they Mm. want their kids to be vaccinated. So either that you vaccinate kids or you let them acquire herd immunity, which in this case, you know, people do not like the sound of it, but it wouldn't inevitably happen because COVID's there and it's going to spread. The question is whether you drag out that process by continually self-isolating bubbles of kids and you it takes months, potentially years to do, or whether you say, right, that's it, we've protected the elderly and the most vulnerable, and we have to accept those consequences. But it is a, a dilemma that the government did not think it would have to deal with, and now it does. And it's been it, it has kind of made vague noises about ending self isolation and trying to uh, for uh, for larger bubbles in September and for schools to exercise discretion. It's not at all clear how <laughs> on how many kids have to self isolate when one is infected. It's all a complete mess. And in the meantime, we're doing exactly what the government said it would not do, which is putting kids last, basically. And while the rest of society opens up saying, no, we are repeatedly going to make you stay at home for 10 days. And this could go on for, for months and months and months. Well, it's not just kids and parents. I noticed that there are there are other people being pinged by the app. I saw somebody I know on Twitter to say they went to the pub to watch the match and uh, then they got pinged and now they've got to, um, you know, stay at home for 10 days, even though uh, they've tested negative. Because we complain that sort of test and trace wasn't very efficient. Does it? Is it in overdrive now? Because people just be getting pinged, <laughs> pinged yeah. left, right, and centre. It's just well, I don't want to be. I don't want to be Goldilocks about it. No, but, <laughs> but it is. It's it's true. Uh, it's uh, very hard to understand sometimes how the app works because officially it's supposed to ping you if you've been in close contact with someone for more than fifteen minutes who's been diagnosed with COVID. But I don't think we know what close contact really means anymore. You know, with a mask, without a mask, in a well-ventilated area, in a badly ventilated area, so many different factors going on that can change the levels of risk. Uh, but obviously, as there are more infections, you will be close more often to somebody who's got COVID. On this week's edition, so farewell, Matt Hancock. What does the Hansi Health Secretary sudden fall tell us about truth and consequences inside Johnson's government? And what can we expect from his replacement? Humpty-headed Ayn Randstam, Sajid Javid. <laughs> cruel, cruel. <laughs> D- Dorian and I have bald privilege. We're allowed to do this. We, we get to say this. Of, yeah, exactly. And of all, the, of all the nursery rhyme characters, that is the one he most resembles. <laughs>
We look at intimidation, bigotry and deceit in Batley and Spen. Is this the ugliest by-election in decades? And if so, is it George Galloway's fault? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we catch up with GB News. After an explosive launch, largely powered by hate-watching, the channel seems to be running out of steam. But is it too soon to write it off? First, don't forget our much rescheduled live show, The Bunker vs. Oh God, What Now, is now happening on Tuesday the 10th of August at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. You can join me, Ian, Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu, plus Bunker regulars Yasmin Sahan, Arthur Snell, Ahir Shah and Andrew Harrison for a show of two halves which will definitely not go to penalties. Tickets are on general sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. And Patreon people get 10% off with a special discount code, so it's a very good time to sign up for Patreon. Just search Patreon Oh God, What Now podcast to find out more. First this week, goodbye Matt Hancock, the man who tragically misunderstood the slogan Hands, Face, Space. (laughs) As I'm sure you know, he resigned on Saturday after breaking COVID rules in the form of an affair with an old friend and advisor, which in this government is usually the same thing. Ian, despite having previously called Hancock fucking hopeless, uh, Johnson stood by him on Friday, as did several ministers, only for him to then resign the next day. Given the scale and nature of the story, um, why didn't he just sort of cut to the chase and, and, and sack him? Did either Hancock or Johnson think he'd be able to write it out? Well, evidently, Hancock didn't after 48 hours, but Johnson presumably still did because at that point he hadn't sacked him, much as he's trying to fucking claim that he has now. You know, so, I mean, I think the answer to that is, you know, is ultimately strategic and conscious i don't think this is you know just something that he accidentally intuitively takes on i think it is conscious that there is an awareness that you cannot allow standards in public life to be um, a condition upon which the government is judged because if you do boris johnson will have to fucking go himself that's Mm. key to the whole endeavor you know over and over again he behaves in way and this has got nothing to do with affairs and i really couldn't give a fuck who wants to have sex with whoever the hell they want to have sex with they can do whatever they like as far as i'm concerned and still be decent at the politics still have a decent public life this is to do with you know would you allow a situation where someone is taking public money that you have not confirmed whether or not you have a reason to be supporting them for that role this is about whether you're putting out public messaging that you yourself are contravening when you're in your when you're uh, in private, when you're away from people, when you're in the office. We could all come up probably, you know, off the top of our heads with about seven to ten stories immediately that Johnson would be responsible for. So if he says, no, actually, there are such things as standards, then the first person it will be applied to is himself. And for that reason, even when it causes his government damage, he doesn't take action. Do you think it was the um, the harrowing video evidence which the Sun released late on Friday, <laughs> the sort of that made the difference? Because I was I was thinking about this how 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 when something horrific happens, it can be upsetting to read about, worse to see a picture, but the absolute worst is video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And people often talk about this, you know, people who, for example, work at Facebook, you know, deciding content that they need to delete. So I wondered whether basically that was that was the deciding factor. Like, why was this why was this different when the government consistently acts with impunity? So, I mean, I think, look, for for Hancock's in Hancock's head, he would have been sat there that night thinking, can I get away with this? You know, can I survive? You know, am I going to be able to get up on the Downing Street podium, you know, the next week? If there's another wave and I have to tell people to be distant, am I going to be able to survive it? Or is every single question that comes back to me going to be about this? And the extent to which that was true was dependent on the level of public outrage. And you can't disconnect the public outrage from that sort of shivering, cringing sense of disgust that you had while watching the video, because that's the kind of thing that makes people talk about it more, makes people think about it more. It means it has a deeper emotional reaction to them. It spreads further. And so the outrage gets bigger. So there is a connection there. And I'm not denying that, you know, perhaps people sort of discussed over that video on a basic, really quite superficial physical level had some role in it. But I think the only sort of pertinence it had was how much it contributed to that sense of public outrage, getting to a point where he thought that he literally just really couldn't get through with the job. And what you were saying about kind of, I suppose, the government's general attitude here um, seems to be summed up by Robert Buckland, uh, Lord Chancellor, Justice Secretary, allegedly a law guy, told Nick Robinson today that basically public standards don't matter because voters don't really care. You know, and basically holding up the elections in May as sort of evidence that, that all of this stuff that the voters didn't really care. Was that kind of what, a sort of mask off moment which, which really reveals what they think? Yeah, that's spot on. I think that's the quiet bit out loud. And actually that goes to the heart 
that's almost that's almost fucking philosophical because it goes to the heart of of really of the populist idea of an idea that you can't you can trace that shit back to fucking Rousseau if you want you know that there is a general will people if people think and vote a certain way all that really fucking matters is that public opinion that public sentiment the institutions that you put around it like parliament like the courts they don't fucking matter and we saw that after Brexit with the way that Theresa May Boris Johnson treated parliament treated the courts treated the press treated civil society and also the other values in politics do not count except in so far as the public opinion cares about them so basic public standards, um, ethics in the manner in which you conduct your discourse, anti-corruption practices, those are only pertinent insofar as the general public gives a shit. As the government looks at it, they look and think they don't give a shit and therefore it doesn't matter. And in that moment, Buckland, who I think probably on this fucking podcast, I probably said was the best of the lot when he put that cabinet together and was like, well, even he has just degraded into the most abysmal moral fucking state by swallowing this kind of philosophy whole and now regurgitating it on radio and TV stations. Roz, the video was filmed on a, on a hidden CCTV camera leaked to the sun by persons unknown. Is this one occasion where, where the conspiracy theorists are right to be excited and have theories about who, who was trying to take Hancock down? No, I, I don't think so. I think it was fairly simple. I mean, the, the story was that it was um, an employee that who was you know had access to the footage and and he leaked it because he was so fed up about lockdown. Now that may or may not be true. It may just be the son's way of avoiding explaining the full origins of the video. We're all filmed constantly in public buildings and on streets, and you know it's hardly surprising that a man who during a pandemic, is going to find it hard to pursue an affair anywhere but at work, is, is, is caught in this tryst, as we, uh, as we call it, or clinch, as other people call it. It is <laughs> just, just not surprising. Steamy yeah. clinch. Steamy. Well, it was quite steamy. I found it really uncomfortable to watch this. <laughs> I was disgusted by myself for, for actually watching it. And then I thought of, I felt, I, I almost felt a kind of pity for Hancock. And I know this is going to seem strange because I have no time for Hancock's politics at all. But we've created this society in which we're comfortable with being recorded all the time. And so when physical contact between people who don't live together is effectively banned, th- this is where we end up. We end up gawping at two middle-aged adults snogging in an office. <laughs> and I found myself thinking, oh, God, maybe this will cut through because it's about sex. And I thought... What have you become? <laughs> as, as Ian was saying, I now have so little faith in the ability of the government to behave decently that I'm reduced to their level in order to hope that something can change. I would say a great sympathy reducer is the is the detail, I think, in the Times story uh, that he woke up his eight-year-old uh, oh, yeah. on the night before the story broke is, uh, to terrible. inform them that he was leaving mummy to go and live with someone else. Yeah, I think that actually cut through much more uh, than yeah, yeah. the than maybe even the video itself did. Also last Saturday, Time supported Hancock and me using a private email account for official business for several months during the pandemic. Obviously, that story got a bit swamped. Do you think that's as serious? Yeah, unsurprisingly, I do. I think it's a lot more serious, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, why would you do this unless you had something to hide? That's the question you've got to ask yourself. Why would he do that? Sex always cuts through with the with the public, it's true, and recklessness and infidelity in your private life sometimes correlates with untrustworthiness in public life. For example, with someone like Boris Johnson. That's not always the case, because some great statespeople have been, you know, serial shaggers and slept around a lot. It's not always the case. But in this instance, Gina Colladangelo had been put on the public payroll by Matt Hancock. And you have to ask yourself, was that to make it easier for him to conduct an affair with her at work? Was he also using his private email address to help his lover's brother get an NHS contract, which it emerges that he coincidentally also had. And Mm. these are questions that we can't properly answer now because he was using this address. And if he has any brains whatsoever, he will now have deleted all the email evidence. So we will be none the wiser. It does seem fair enough. I mean, I don't really mind if Matt Hancock has an affair, but I don't want to actually have to fucking pay for it. (laughs) that's asking too much of my liberalism (laughs) last week we 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 devoted quite a lot of time to talking about dido harding uh, and her bid for the top nhs job um now she was a close sort of horse friend with uh matt hancock um they're both 
amateur jockeys. Is her bid effectively dead now, as various anonymous Tories seem to be saying? Um, yes, and I return to my previous point, Millard, that this is the <laughs> desirable result of a, a revelation that really had nothing to do with it, that he's been ousted, yeah, yeah. which is a relief, but frankly, not necessarily for the right reasons. Um, Minnie, for all his many flaws, uh, Hancock was a strong sort of pro-lockdown voice in the cabinet at crucial points. And we know, you know, what difference in terms of human lives, timing of lockdowns made. Sergei Chavid immediately promised that reopening would not just be accelerated, but irreversible. Is it basically that's the job he's been given? Don't get in the way of the economy, you know, onwards. Don't don't argue. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just his job. I mean, obviously, it's the Tories' priority. They've made that really clear um, throughout the pandemic. But I think we also have to remember that the SAG was Chancellor mm. of the Exchequer. His background is business and finance. I mean, he's he's been Secretary of State for every bloody department at this point. But the economy is probably much more within his comfort zone than health and the, the ins and outs of the science I think it's really bullshit of anyone to come in and make that firm a commitment that it's going to be irreversible. I mean, it can't be until the, the literal mm. entire world has a grasp of COVID and vaccinations. So I think his approach to come in and talk about it being irreversible is maybe a response to kind of lack of public confidence because of Hancock. So maybe it was a kind of, if he appears confident, the public feels confident. I mean, that's a pretty basic understanding of it, but that's kind of my only explanation as to why he would come in in that manner. And looking beyond the pandemic, um, as he's a sort of hardcore devotee of, of Margaret Thatcher and Ayn Rand, the piecemeal privatisation of the NHS that Labour is always warning against, is that more likely? Are you more worried uh, about the NHS under, under him than Hancock? I'm I'm always worried about the NHS and the Tories. I mean, I think if you look at the evidence, the, the only evidence that we've got about him that he's going to be kind of more pro-privatisation is his voting record and things that he said previously. So he's previously voted against things like the NHS limiting income from private patients and um, he's voted for lifting the cap on how much trusts can earn from private income. And obviously he's pro-austerity. He was a treasury minister at the time that austerity was implemented Labour have sort of described him as leaving the fox in charge of the chicken coop. Now, where I think we'll work out how far he's willing to take it or, or where we'll get a keener sense of his priorities is the upcoming health and care bill. So a white paper on that bill was published earlier this year. On the face of it, that bill is is to bring the NHS and local authorities together. And so I think there are bits of it that are welcome. But the analysis so far of that white paper is that the bill leaves scope for privatisation, deregulation, sharing of confidential private data with private companies. Um, and uh, it kind of gives more powers to the Secretary of State. So I think that will be the moment at which we know far more about his position. But from my perspective, appointing someone like Sajid Javid, given his background, given his relationships with banks like JP Morgan, it's a pretty clear statement about the direction that the government wants the NHS to go in. Can't believe I'm, I'm missing missing Matt Hancock already. <laughs> already. <laughs> Sorry for making fun of you earlier, Matt. <laughs> Just got carried away. <laughs> cheap laughs. Um, Ian, finally, there are rumours that Johnson wants to bring him back sort of once he's served his uh, time in the wilderness. Do you think that that's likely, that this is the kind of thing that will be soon forgotten or, or, or could it be difficult to get past the press and public? I don't know. There's no way of telling. I mean, I can't imagine that there is going to be a scenario in which he'd bring him back or what use he would be in any department that he would be brung to. But then being completely hapless and ineffective has never stopped anyone getting into Johnson's cabinet. So I can't rule anything out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you're listening as a Patreon supporter, today is the day of the Batley and Spend by-election. 
The former seat of the murdered MP Joe Cox is being contested by her sister, Kim Ledbetter, Tory Ryan Stevenson and bumptious demagogue George Galloway, as well as far-right freaks Anne-Marie Waters and Jada Franson. <laughs> Just <laughs> coasting around a series of litigious values there. As you... I, will st- I will stand by that in court. The atmosphere is toxic with reports of intimidation, dirty tricks and an assortment of bigotries. The Tories are ahead in the polls, but we don't know the result yet. So we're just going to talk about the campaign itself. Roz, this has been called uh, the nastiest by-election since Bermondsey in 1983, when Labour candidate Peter Tatchell was subjected to homophobic abuse by the press and his opponents. It's not just the Galloway factor. People were physically attacking Labour canvases, and they appeared to be sort of uh, more of the the far-right tendency. How has this one got so bad? It's particularly horrible that this should be happening in a constituency where the MP Joe Cox was was murdered five years ago. It seems almost unthinkable that, that, that it kind of almost spawned so much more hatred. I, I think Batley and Spen is particularly alert to Islamophobia. Um, the Joe Cox killing showed local people that the far right can do terrible things and that makes them particularly sensitive and understandably so to evidence of Islamophobia. And that is part of the reason why George Galloway has been able to cut through so effectively, I think, in that constituency. Also, one of the things that has happened in the pandemic, which which sometimes goes a bit unnoticed, I think, is that people are much more focused on local injustices and inequalities than they were. When Brexit dominated everything, the emphasis was on Britain and sovereignty and for good or bad, these these kinds of big issues. Now people have spent more than a year mostly stuck at home. And in the north especially, they've often gone into harsh local restrictions and they feel held back. There's a new politics of resentment towards other regions of the UK. And in some places in the north, there's also a feeling that your only hope of investment is to get a Tory MP, that that's the only way you will get noticed in, in London. And that feeling of being pulled in and out of restrictions by a London-based elite is, I think, stronger than we suspect sometimes in the in the rest of the country. Starmer has not been able to exploit that. Andy Burnham, of course, has. Hmm. It opens up the potential for a lot of anger and potential violence. So George Galloway is a carpetbagger. Uh, his track record includes hosting a show on Russia Today, sticking up for assorted dictators, uh, denying certain war crimes... He's now exploiting homophobia and transphobia, appearing alongside people like Lawrence Fox. Do you think he has a political mission in life beyond sort of causing trouble and, and, and burnishing his ego? Because you could say, you would say, of course, uh, even if you were not a fan of Jeremy Corbyn, that, that he, he had quite a clear sort of moral and political mission. Can you say the same of Galloway? It reminds me a bit of Nigel Farage in some ways, in that his aim is to disrupt and to shake things up and to cause trouble and see what comes out the other end, and it may be something that suits him. Uh, certainly, I think he wants to get rid of Keir Starmer and to prove, in his mind, that, that the centre-left can't win elections and can't cut through. So I think that's his immediate aim right now. Minnie, why do you think Galloway is effective as a campaigner? I mean, he wasn't effective last time. I can't remember where he stood. It was in a Scottish seat. Um, he's very effective here, uh, it seems. What's his sort of technique? Yeah, I mean, exactly what Ros says. I think he has a very similar energy to Farage. It's that kind of confident, I'm down with the people. And, he, you know, he is quite a good speaker in a lot of ways. And he also really knows how to draw or, or kind of use media attention to his advantage. I mean, it's quite a miracle that the celebrity Big Brother incident doesn't come up every single time that he speaks, which I think kind of speaks to how how good he is at manipulating different situations. But kind of as a campaigner myself, and this might be kind of really obvious, the most effective campaigners are the people where there is absolutely no grey area about what they believe or what they've made their priorities. Um, He is really good at that. So you don't have to agree with him, but we all absolutely know what he's about. And that makes it really easy for the public uh, to be drawn to him because it's either, yeah, I agree, or I don't. So therefore, what do you make of sort of Labour's response to uh, Galloway on the issues that he's talking about, on issues like, you you know, on Palestine, even on kind of, you know, sort of teaching in schools? Are are they, do you think they're therefore kind of sort of caught between stools? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think how I kind of feel about Labour's response is that they have tried to meet Galloway on his issues in terms of kind of like foreign policy. They've they've kind of fought like with like quite unsuccessfully. Mm. And I think that speaks to the wider issue of Labour not having a very clear policy platform, because they could hugely have spoken to people on the ground in Batley and Spen about all sorts of inequalities that they face and which need addressing, and which would also unite the kind of Muslim community in Batley and Spen with people who aren't Muslim. And for me, that's where the conflict is. What they've done is kind of play into Galloway's hands when actually they could have done something completely different and take a a much stronger stance in a strategy which kind of engages and inspires people on the ground. Well, Minnie, another dividing, uh, one dividing line that he's exploiting is, is one between voters of Pakistani and Indian origin over Kashmir. It's obviously one of the, the world's great kind of, you know, points of friction. Is, it, is there any reason why Kashmir or indeed Palestine should be a big issue in a, in a by-election in Northern England? I mean, no, it shouldn't be. And, um, what Galloway is doing is exploiting and manipulating an area of kind of historical contention, which makes it feel like to the Islamic community that he's prioritising the issues that he cares about. So look, I'm a member of the Islamic community. I can tell you that Muslims are very tight-knit because it's inbuilt into the religion and into a lot of cultural practices. Community is really, really pivotal to being a Muslim and people talk to each other a lot. Ultimately, Every community group wants to feel like their voices are being heard. Muslims obviously care about issues which affect the international community and also things that that affect them here. So what he's doing is exploiting that desire to feel like they're having their voices heard and uh, using that against Labour because he knows that they haven't got any other kind of clear policies which would empower the Islamic community in Batley and Spen, just as Ros was saying earlier, they kind of feel like they're left behind. Islamophobia is high. The, the people of Batley and Spen have in many ways have their, have their identities politicised and have been used as political football for a really, really long time. And that's the thing that Labour needs to grasp. Because um, I remember reading some time ago, a, a year or so ago, a really interesting article pointing out that, that, that many people in Labour's um, sort of core are actually there's a, there's a sort of socially conservative uh, group there who vote Labour for other reasons, but are not necessarily as aligned with certain beliefs in elsewhere in, in kind of Labour's coalition. Is this a sort of long term problem here? Because Galloway is is clearly aligned with conservatives like the man who heckled uh, Kim Ledbetter, who oppose you know any mention of LGBTQ issues in schools. And is this a fault line in the Labour coalition that? you know, longer term is a problem because, you, you know, religious conservatives of whichever religion are, are not going to agree with the liberals on that particular issue. Yeah, look, Muslims, many different religions are ethnically, culturally, politically diverse. And I think, you know, the kind of LGBT anti-LBGT Muslims, they obviously do not speak for the entire community. Mm. And there is an argument to be made about whether you should even be targeting people with that kind of belief as someone from the Labour Party. The biggest problem maybe for Labour is treating that group of people by religious lines instead of by kind of income, race, class lines, because actually Mm. we're not all the same. And you can't treat us all the same because we're every single person is different. And I think that's where a lot of um, politicians make this mistake is by going, those are a group of Muslims. They think X, Y and Z when that's obviously not true. Yeah, no, really good point. Ian, this is only happening because Joe Cox's successor, Tracy Brabin, went for the West Yorkshire mayoralty, which he won. Did Labour have the power to prevent her from vacating a vulnerable seat and said, you may want to be mayor, but you can't? Yeah, well, I mean, you could definitely bring pressure to bear, but I mean, I, I just find that's a, you know, but by the time that you're having to ask that question as a party to avoid by-elections because you're going to lose them when the government's been in power for over ten years, then you've got bigger problems to worry about than, than whether she takes it right. Like you just, you can't be in that position. That's such a cringing defensive posture that it would indicate very, very bad things indeed. Uh, now, Ballyspin was a Tory seat between 1983 and 1997. Um, and Labour 
probably only won last time, held on to it last time because of an independent candidate who siphoned off Tory votes. Why has it become so totemic for Labour as if, as if sort of, is it simply because you're not meant to lose by-elections anywhere in the country uh, when you're the opposition? Predominantly, yes. But there's also that sense of it, it is a more complex, distinct seat. It wouldn't be your classic sort of red wall seat. I mean, when you looked at Hartlepool, there was that sense that people had that Hartlepool was kind of already a Tory seat. Like just looking at the, at the maths of it, that was the way it would, it would tend to fall. I mean, in this case, it's much, much more complicated. It's much, we don't really know what's happening in some of those independencies. We, there's an indication that those were mostly leave votes for independent candidates, but also, that that party was sort of running on an independent local uh, figure sort of platform. So it's a bit more complicated. You also, look, the, the pressure on Starmer right now is severe. So each time you get a by-election like this, it is going to be considered the test of the leadership. And by-elections aren't a fair test of that. Like neither Hartlepool nor this one are. What is a fair test is the local election results. And the local election results were a shit show. So it's not unfair that people are asking these questions of him at the moment. It would be bizarre and very depressing if if they weren't asking them so i think ultimately anything that happens right now with labor is going to also and the fact that the lib Dems have just cleaned up in their own by-election overturning such a strong tory support kind of means that the pressure is even more severe well we're going to talk about the implications of a loss after we actually uh, get the results do you think i know we don't try not to do predictions but do you think the fact that galloway and starmer's sort of worst enemies want him to to, to go means that it is almost guaranteed that he won't well he wouldn't anyway i mean and and you wouldn't expect him to i mean it's not enough that's not enough of a test you know this is the fucking annoying thing about where we are right now is that there's almost no such thing as a fair test because we're still in the pandemic period we're coming out of it but we're still in the pandemic period so it's very hard to to really sit there and go this is what normal politics will be like this is what politics will be like in in 2023 when the next election is held so it would be crazy for him to go for that reason and anyway, doing so would be giving in some of the very, the most pernicious urges that we see in politics, namely that of Galloway, just trying using hatred to encourage Muslims to, to, to conduct his own sort of self-interested, sordid, pitiful little political games. You know, and the fact that, and also, by the way, just the fucking fact that Galloway gets to go out there saying that I am a friend of Muslims and he stands up for the Muslim community. This is a man who over and over again, when Muslims were killed with chemical weapons in Syria on two separate occasions, called it a hoax. The denies that there are camps, concentration camps with Muslims in them in China. The only people he's a fucking friend of is dictators and totalitarians rather than the Muslim community itself. So really just the spectacle of hypocrisy and brazen, venal political nature that we're having to see right now is, is a bit too much to fucking swallow. We should also mention that somebody, uh, presumably on, on, on the right, has been illegally circulating fake lef- leaflets, emphasising Labour support for Black Lives Matter and taking the knee uh, in order to turn voters against them. I don't think we know who's been, who's been sending them out. But the whole thing is a mess. But before we go, I wanted to talk about Ryan Stevenson, uh, who nobody really talks about, even though. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, the guy that might win, even though oh, he, right, yeah, even though he yeah. seems like the most likely winner, uh, Tory councillor. Um, what do we know about? Is there anything anything to say about him? Not much. We don't know much about him. And um, we sort of looked around. He seems sort of relatively harmless. <laughs> You know, for a Tory, he's what's interesting is the things he's been saying to people on the doorstep. And this speaks to what Rods was saying earlier, that he's basically just going around and he's very open about it. He was fucking doing it on Radio 4 the other day when they were walking around with him. It's very open to just going to a doorstep and going, I will get funding for the area if you will let me because I'm a conservative. And you think like the fucking poison of what you're actually mm. saying is it's, it's, it's almost like a worse form of corruption than stuff we were talking about swirling around Hancock at the beginning because it's just fucking transparent. You know, there's no need to even hide it. to so say, electatory MP, because that is now the basis upon which the government hands out money rather than the need of the individuals in a community. So, you know, he is unremarkable in terms of his moral catastrophe for the Tory party. Unfortunately, it is the matter that moral catastrophe is very severe indeed. Now it's time for Overrated Underrated, where each week we pick the Love Islands and Kong Islands of politics. Ian Dunt, without saying work is overrated and holidays are underrated, what what are your choices this week? Not as a bit. I think, look, um, 
overrated is uh, Great Britain and underrated is the entirety of the rest of the world. Because I just had a holiday that was in Scotland. I had to be in, in Scotland. Scotland, you know, sure, great. Because I can't go overseas. And, you know, it's very nice. I mean, but it's, it's very fucking cold um, and it's wet. <laughs> And there's no beaches, or rather there are beaches, but it's like a mockery from God, right? Because it's a beautiful looking It's an island. Of course there are beaches. There are beaches. And the the Scottish beaches are very beautiful. And they're at their best if you're looking at them through a window, you know, through a car window or through a a window in a house. Anything that protects you from the cold and the midges and the rain and the incessant fucking grey mist that seems to cover the entire country. So, I mean, I guess my thing is, People often have this thing that they say of like, you know, staycations. I know it's not technically a staycation, but on the other hand, you know, fuck off. Staycations are great because you get to stay in your country. And what's wrong with Britain? Britain's fine, whatever. I don't want a fucking holiday here ever again. And the reason for that is predominantly the weather. The weather is shit in this country and unreliable. And people can keep on pretending that is not the case. And that somehow, if you're wearing three jumpers and fucking walking boots, you're having just as good a time as you'd be having on the beach, uh, you know, in, in Portugal or, or sipping on wine in fucking Italy. And that is objectively not the case. And anyone that seriously insists that it is needs to get their fucking head Isn't again. Isn't this, though... The argument that Minnie, you were making. Yeah. Oh shit! You were going. Sorry, this, yeah. is this, is a, this is a personal attack against me. <laughs> I think. I think I haven't been saving this up for the last month. I think, I think the bit where he said you needed your head examined was always. No, no, no. Look, I I sort of agree with him. My point was more that at this point in time, it's not worth booking a holiday abroad. But I would say that just like. I think there's loads of bits of England that I would love to holiday mm. in or the UK. And yeah, I, I 50% agree with you and 50% think you're bullying me. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I think there might be a solution to this if the remote working thing takes off. That I think there could be a way of, if we all do get to do remote working as much as we like, it's all very relaxed with employers in the future. You can maybe go off for a week to another part of the country and work from there. And that would be quite nice because you're not using up any of your holiday time sort of relatively cheap. Maybe that's the solution. This is me trying to come up with a, a compromise so it doesn't sound like I've been too dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> Now it is time for But Your Emails. This week, we have one from Jan Kopinski, who asks, what should learning to live with COVID mean? We can probably agree among our progressive elite metropolitan bubble mates, speak for yourself, that it shouldn't mean going back to the way we did things before. But which elements of current precautions should we keep? What should we refine? I, for one, haven't had a cold in well over a year, and I'd love to keep it that way. Practically speaking, um, what will living with COVID mean? Roz. Well, living with COVID means accepting, unfortunately, that there are always going to be people, you know, who are going to get it and who are going to die of it. And this is this is such a difficult issue because we don't know what level of tolerance of COVID people are ready to handle. It's going to be extremely difficult to go from a state of mind where you're monitoring every COVID case, where you have to self-isolate if you for 10 days, if you're in contact with one, to one where we say, okay, that's just another disease. And it's going to take much longer, I think, than the government thinks for people to get into that frame of mind, because we've spent 15 months being told, you must not transmit COVID. So that will be hard. In terms of what it will mean for uh, whether we carry on doing things like social distancing, I think what will stick around is masks, in particularly on public transport and in places where you're not, you're not actually wanting to see people face to face, where you're not using those social cues, where you're not, you don't, you don't miss seeing people. So, you know, on, on buses, uh, in the theatre, where you're looking at the stage rather than other people. I think it's very likely that particularly if you've got a cold, it will be seem uh, antisocial not to wear a mask if you go out. And, that I think is is going to stay around for a very long time. Yeah, I, th- I think some masks on public transport and the hand sanitizer stations everywhere. Which I mean, I don't know, you know, who's sort of funding them, and I don't know whether the hand sanitizer people are going to want to keep doing that. Um, but that just seems to me uh, something very small that's very very useful. 
and just that idea that we have more of, of sanitizing and hand washing, it seems that the number of viruses that I picked up that I just took for granted was perhaps unnecessary because I was just like, you know, licking the escalator rails. <laughs> Yeah, we don't know, of course, you know, different viruses and uh, different, very different ways of behaving in terms of whether they spread via droplets or whether it's, and COVID is a particularly airborne virus. Uh, that that's what makes masks and social distancing so effective. To be honest, hand sanitizer is less effective, but it will be effective against other viruses. Um, Minnie, one thing that bothers me, I suppose, is when we talk about uh, deaths, you know, as long, as long as we're protecting the sort of vulnerable, but there's so much that isn't known about long COVID, which seems to affect people of all ages what do you think sort of living with covid would mean yeah i mean i definitely fall on the side that i i kind of just want there to be the least possible chance of people having um and spreading covid so i think the thing that i think that i would hope stays is the kind of flexible working culture the culture that understands that um, if you're sick, you don't go into work and that you are supported to do that from either your employer or the government. And I think that that's something that's that's really important that we maintain. And I also really hope that there's kind of, I mean, the government hasn't exactly taken this on board, but I hope kind of culturally there is a, that, re, that we retain this kind of understanding about what care looks like, especially for women, especially for single mothers, um, for parents on low incomes. I think that kind of understanding that there's like a lot of people who are basically one paycheck away from having a really, really shit time and that the the government needs to kind of look again at what provisions are in place for people like that. I hope that kind of cultural understanding stays because I, I think that's fairly new. Ian, um, obviously you're a massive fan of lockdown and you want it to go on forever. I mean, what what do you think is a kind of, uh, I suppose, the the rational way once we manage to get infections below a certain level? What is what's the kind of a rational, reasonable amount of COVID that, that that you could live with? It's impossible. I mean, it's impossible to answer this without sounding like a sort of social Darwinist, really, because the reality is, again, as like Ros was just saying, it's just just like you you are there is there is going to be a certain amount of death that we are going to be prepared to live with. Um, and for flu, which we were prepared to live with that death, it was actually pretty fucking high. Like it was about sort of 17,000 a year kind of thing. It's a lot of fucking people, you know. And th- the thing is, in society, we just sort of... Flu, it, it doesn't activate the category in my head that COVID activates, right? C- COVID is like the new threat must mm. be stopped. Whereas flu just felt like it's just one of those. It's just always going to be there. It's one of those things, you know, it's just you, you just go through it. Um and but that doesn't necessarily mean we have to emulate the attitude we had towards flu. We could think that maybe that wasn't the morally right sort of way to behave. And actually, there should be more social focus on what we can do to reduce flu, whether that is, you know, washing our hands, whether that is using masks on on, on transport. But ultimately, look, we, we don't know where we're going to end up yet with the vaccines, with variants. It's sort of kind of too early to have this conversation. I, I find lots of the people, certainly not this questioner, but lots of the people online who ask me this. It's always like what, they, what they're trying to get me to say is the word zero to make me seem hysterical and insane so that they can say, well, we've got to get rid of everything now because you're never going to get to zero. We don't know really what the number's going to be. But the thing is, at the end of this, there is going to be sort of within all of us, or certainly within a society, a kind of mortality assessment of, of the amount of deaths that we are prepared to tolerate. And as bad as that sounds, that is the thing that we have been doing all of our lives anyway, without realising it. And that's the uplifting end of the show. <coughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sorry to have ended on that note. That was an idea. Um, thanks to Roz. Thank you. Minnie. Thanks, everyone. And Ian. Thank you. You will also die. <laughs> All of us are alone in the universe. <laughs> Endlessly alone. We came here alone. We will die alone. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. <laughs> <laughs> no man is an island. <laughs> um, on this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, if you're still here, we're looking at the lightning rise and possible fall of GB News and where Andrew Neil's plucky ragtag band of woke bashers go from here. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is the Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers.
Hello and thanks from me to John Saunders, Jane Cheslin, Ben Foulds, David Jackson and Yoke Hopkins. And a shout from me to Larissa H, Gareth Jones, Richard Pryor, Rob G and Joe Heaton. Hello and a big thank you from me to Stephen Scott, Mercedes Picard, Mark Hymers, WJ Dorman and Andrew Cooper. And thanks for all your support to Shanti Pendleton, Romy Fursland, Zwango, Ed Baker and Tom. Take care and see you soon. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor, Ian Dunt and Minnie Raman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now? Extra Bit. We've been hearing about GB News for months, and now it's here. It launched on the 13th of June to much derision, but impressive ratings of 164,000. Two weeks later, its peak has fallen to 32,000, making it officially less popular than this podcast. And Andrew... (laughs) (laughs) Where are fucking Guardian think pieces? I know, I was quite excited about that. Where's a a Twitter Twitter account dedicated to making fun of us? (laughs) Uh, Andrew Neil has already taken an indefinite break. Minnie, you, in fact, all of us have been have been tucking into GB News. Is there any ideas why there's trouble in paradise? Yeah, I mean, I've watched it. Can I just say, I have been so personally pleased by how shit mm-hmm. it is. <laughs> My personal joy has been witnessing the downfall of Simon McCoy of the BBC. Because I don't know if you guys remember, but I had like my five minutes of Twitter fame last year because... I did an interview with him where he asked me if two children who died in the channel were responsible for their own deaths. And now I like just really want to ask him if he's responsible for the death of his own career. <laughs> because it's just like, so good. It's so good. Um, yeah, I mean, anyway, I think I think it's just what for me, what it shows, I think it's exposed that a lot of these kind of anti-woke voices are basically big mouths and actually not that many people agree with them or want to sit and watch them endlessly. And I think it's kind of that like heady mix of how like the social media bubble and echo chambers make it seem like there's a way bigger audience for something than there actually is. Um, And I also think they kind of really underestimated I mean my assumption was that they'd done their sort of audience analysis and knew that there was going to be loads of people who wanted to to watch the show but actually I think it was quite a big gamble to think that something that works in America was going to be successful here and I think it shows that they don't have that much understanding of, of where the public is really at when it comes to that stuff. And that was a trailer for the Extra Time edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more of Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll be very grateful. Thanks for listening. See you next week. (laughs) 